Certainly, if someone is charged with a first-degree kidnapping, it's really important to fight and try to get that charge reduced to a lesser form such as second degree where the penalties are much less. Another negotiation on a kidnapping case is a false imprisonment where somebody maybe is just temporarily detained, they're not moved, there's not great harm or peril that they are subjected to. And false imprisonment is, is a gross misdemeanor where the maximum penalty is up to one year in jail. So if you or your loved one has been charged here in Las Vegas, Henderson, Clark County, Reno, throughout Washoe County, or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at the Las Vegas Defense Group and we'll talk about the best way to defend you on these charges. There are basically two situations when the police can seize your firearm legally. One would be if they had a search warrant to recover your firearm. And two would be if the firearm was used in the commission of a crime. Some examples of, of that would be um, if you entered, for example, a courthouse or a federal building with a firearm. If you were carrying a weapon concealed illegally on your person. If you were mentally ill and you were being involuntarily committed, uh, your weapon could be taken out of concern for your mental health. And finally, if you're under the influence of drugs while in possession of a firearm, your firearm could be seized. A term of imprisonment listed under a particular section, whether it was just going to be classified, like this is a class B felony or class C, and then there'll be a, a table somewhere that say, this is how much imprisonment these people can get for this kind of violation. It never sort of worked out that way. Rather, what, what uh, occurs is that based on what is the maximum statutory penalty for the offense that the defendant's convicted of in federal court, it then translates into a class of offense. So our armed bank robbers facing a maximum statutory penalty of 25 years because 25 years is the maximum statutory penalty, that makes this a Class B felony. By this table, once you determine the classification of your offense, I think you'll find helpful in letting you know whether by statute probation is available or not, and upon violation of the probation and subsequent revocation of the probation, how much time could be given. For instance, this Class B felon that we have, our our armed bank robber being a class B felon, the tr authorized term of probation, probation is not authorized by statute for a person who is an armed bank robber. The class B felon, you're not going to get that. Uh, we have over there, and it may be a little confusing to you, where we have the maximum statutory penalty for the offense is what's available upon revocation of probation. You're saying, well, if you couldn't get probation, How's he going to have some penalty available when it's revoked? Because he wasn't going to get it to start with. Well, uh, there is always the possibility, uh, and I think this varies from circuit to circuit, that maybe through cooperation, I know Frank talked a little bit about that earlier, substantial assistance with the government, uh, that the court somehow ends up giving a probation sentence that would not otherwise be authorized by statute because of the cooperation. Based on the class of the felony, 
uh, there are set terms of supervised release allowed. Uh, for instance, our defendant was convicted of a Class B felony, uh, and the Class B felony by statute, you can get up to five years of supervised release to follow this term of imprisonment the court is going to order. Uh, upon violation and subsequent revocation of the supervised release, the defendant could face potentially up to three years of imprisonment. But say the court, for whatever reason, in, in the, a robbery case, armed robbery, gave 25 years of imprisonment. The defendant went off and served in every day of the 25 years of imprisonment. The court could have also given at the time of sentencing, in addition to the 25 years, this five-year term of supervised release. And having served the 25, when the guy comes out and is under supervision by some U.S. probation officer that's not in this audience, uh, then the, that defendant is going to be on supervision, if, and if violating, uh, will be taken back and potentially could face three more years of imprisonment. So it's a total of 28 years that could result in custody from this conviction uh, for this armed bank robbery. Just one other point I want to make is about our fine table uh, back in Chapter 5. Uh, here you've done the calculations in a particular case, and you've decided based on the offense level, you know, in criminal history category, the guideline range. Also, the offense level that is ultimately used in the calculation uh, leads to a table that, that establishes the range of imprisonment. Our case at hand was, uh, what was the offense level for our robber? 20 what? 29. 29. So, so this table would say this defendant, with assuming ability to pay, would have a fine of between $15,000 and $150,000. Hello there and welcome back. You've seen the first two segments of our program and you're probably um, looking forward to a stretch break. So what we'll do is give you a five-minute stretch break, which will provide good opportunity for you to fax in your questions for us. I'm sure you'll have quite a few right now. Let me give you the fax number. It's 1-800-488-0397. So we'll see you back in five minutes, and then we'll have our question and answer period.
Although prostitution is legal in some places here in Nevada, prostitution and solicitation are illegal here in Las Vegas. And thousands of unsuspecting tourists get arrested for this every year. The good news is that at Las Vegas Defense Group, we've had a tremendous record of success in helping people defend against prostitution and solicitation charges. Maybe you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe you were just joking around and not really serious about paying money for sex. Maybe you were the victim of police entrapment. We invite you to call us 24-7 at 702-DEFENSE and tell us your story. We'll see what we can do to get the charges reduced or dismissed. Getting arrested for battery constituting domestic violence here in Nevada automatically goes on your criminal record. Note that the battery domestic violence arrest remains on your record even if you never get charged or if the charge later gets dismissed. If the arrestee is ultimately convicted of battery domestic violence in Nevada, a record of the conviction goes on your criminal record as well. The only way to get rid of arrest and conviction records is through the record sealing process. Criminal records are a matter of public record in Nevada, so anyone can find them through an internet search. Employers routinely do background checks of job applicants to see if they have a criminal record. The only way a battery domestic violence conviction becomes invisible to others is if the person gets the record sealed. Once it's sealed, almost no one has access to that information. Note that sealing is not the same as expunging. Expunging means that the record is destroyed, whereas sealing just means that the record is, quote, cloaked and therefore impossible to see by most people. Unlike California, Nevada law does not allow people to have domestic violence records expunged. It's a good idea, if possible, to get your record expunged. Having a battery domestic violence on your record impairs future job prospects since employers look down on it. It's also socially stigmatizing. Once a person gets their battery domestic violence record sealed in Nevada, no one has to know about it. And the person can legally deny on a job application or during a court hearing that he or she has ever been in trouble for battery domestic violence. The prosecutors are working with right now. So they have somebody that obviously is talking to them and has been talking to them over the last two months. And on this gun, here was the other big question and one of the reasons that I wanted to do the Facebook Live to explain this because I was, you know, I'm educating myself a lot of times when I'm doing these stories and what I learn, I, I love to share with you all because so many of you make comments and then, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll put everything together and we kind of get to a better place. We get to more you know, we get more information. I know what questions to ask. A lot of times you'll bring up points and then those are questions that I'll ask the people that I'm interviewing or whoever's giving the press conference. So in this particular case, um, the gun 
this this Caltech nine millimeter semi-automatic handgun had DNA from the dead bodyguard. It had DNA from Troy Ave, and it had DNA from Taxstone on it. So how do they look at it? The way they write it in the court papers, they go, there's a billions and billions and billions, you know, how many billions of chances of probability that it's this person's DNA. Um, but what they said with the gun is the, the placement of the DNA and some of you law enforcement and investigators and detectives, uh, detectives will understand this better than I I do. They said the placement of the DNA on the gun gives you a much better idea of who had actual possession of the gun. So, for example, with this gun, in this case, in in these in these court in these court papers that we got and that you know that I read, of course, obviously a couple times. They say that the DNA from Taxstone was found on the trigger of the gun, that it was found on the grip of the gun, you know, where you put your put your hand around it, and that it was also found on the on the uh, bottom on the butt end of the clip or the magazine that gets gets that that gets you know however that gets put into the nine millimeter handgun. So his DNA was in places that made them think almost without any shred of a doubt, according to what the prosecutors say, that without any shred of a doubt that this was Taxstone's gun, that he pulled the trigger. The prosecutor said in court, in open court, we believe Ta Taxstone fired the shots that wounded these th three people and killed the bodyguard. He didn't call him the bodyguard, but he said Ronald, Ronald McFadder. And our condolences, my condolences go out to Ronald McFadder's brother, Shanduke McFadder. He's been a partner with ours in our Push for Peace um, efforts with the youth and also with our Hot 97 audience. And I know they've been going through terrible, terrible loss. So my, my condolences again uh, to you, Shanduke, and to your family but and to Trish. But... Um, and your babies, but uh, I think the the main thing about this is that there's a, there's a lot more to this case. So it's very convoluted. It's kind of crazy, and the other crazy thing that you need to know about it too is here's this man lost his life, uh, Ronald McFadder, and basically this whole this whole beef, if you want to call it that, between Troy Ave and between um, Taxstone started over social media. It was insults, it was words, it was don't come at me, do come at me, I can handle it, all these kinds of things. So it was a very sad situation that all this had to happen behind it. Now Taxstone is in federal custody at the moment. The judge today, uh, Judge Peck, said that he was gonna grant uh, a bail package. However, the other thing is that now we found out, I just found out a few minutes ago, that the prosecutors appealed the bail. They said that Taxstone should not get bail because he has uh, two previous felony convictions, more than 20 arrests, that he's a flight risk, and that basically he belongs behind bars until they figure this whole thing out. So that's where we're at. They're going to go back to court in the morning, on uh, Wednesday morning, and they're going to see how 
everything's going and uh, the prosecutors are going to say, Judge, we don't think this guy should get bail. Ken Montgomery, who's the attorney for Taxstone, is going to argue he should get bail and this bail package should stand and that's where we are with it. But um, I have an interview that's here. I have to go do the interview and I want to invite you, all of you, uh, tomorrow we'll be do tomorrow morning we're going to be recording a new episode of Street Soldiers. We're going to be talking about the Trump presidency, what it means for urban America, and also what it means for civil rights. And we have a very well-balanced panel. I'm going to go do an interview with uh, somebody right now for that. And so we're going to have a very exciting Street Soldiers show for you on Friday night at 1030 about the new president. Love him or hate him, he's going to be the new president and people have to deal. So we're going to be talking about how people are dealing of post-conviction writs of habeas corpus. In post-conviction writs of habeas corpus, the person confined or restrained typically must prove that their restraint was caused by some violation of either their federal or state constitutional rights. Using the example earlier of the person who pled guilty uh, pursuant to a plea bargain and received probation as a suspended sentence, if that person's guilty plea was not voluntarily made, they could challenge the confinement or restraint using the post-conviction writ. Mistakes by the court, a prosecutor who failed to abide by the plea bargain agreement are just some examples of how a plea could not be voluntarily made. Since voluntariness is a constitutional due process claim, it can be challenged through the post-conviction writ of habeas corpus. In our example of the person who was serving prison time, following a trial where they were convicted and sentenced. If that person's lawyer provided them ineffective assistance of counsel, that person could potentially challenge their confinement using the post-conviction writ, since effective assistance of counsel is guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. These were just a few of the ways that a writ of habeas corpus can be used to challenge a person's illegal confinement or restraint. There are many, many more. If you have a question about a case that you are personally involved in, I would recommend that you contact a qualified criminal defense attorney in the state in which the confinement is occurring to get a consultation about the facts and the law that might apply to your case. If you have any questions, if you have any comments about today's video or the writ, add those down in the comment section below and I'll be happy to respond to those. Give us a thumbs up if you liked the video today and don't forget to share it on your social media platforms. Thank you for watching. Gaming fraud here in the state of Nevada encompasses a wide array of activities under NRS 
0.465.070. This can range from using insider information to make a sports wager to tampering with a slot machine to using an unlawful sliding technique when rolling dice at a craps table to moving chips around uh, after the action is started in a blackjack game. Most of the activities in the casino are on film because you've got cameras everywhere. So it's very common if we have an allegation of unlawful play at a table that we'll have the video where we can see the activity that the casino may be alleging was fraudulent. However, a lot of the activities that give rise to gambling fraud uh, prosecutions involve activities that can't be seen on the casino's cameras. And you don't, uh, you don't necessarily have to be the one playing in order to be charged and prosecuted for gambling fraud. If you provide information that somebody else could use to commit a fraud against the casino, then you could be charged with gaming fraud as an accomplice. A lot of people don't realize that cheating in a casino can subject you to criminal penalties. They might think that they're merely outsmarting the casino. But the casino, if they catch you cheating, will, will often do more than simply 86 you and tell you never to come back. They may turn you over to law enforcement. They may pull the video of the events that gave rise to the allegation. And you may find yourself in court facing criminal charges. Nevada law treats sexual coercion very seriously. Penalties can include up to six years in state prison and having to register as a sex offender for life. But the good news is that here at Las Vegas Defense Group, we've had tremendous success helping people fight these cases. You may be the victim of false allegations or an innocent misunderstanding. You may be wrongfully accused. Unfortunately, this happens all the time. We invite you to call us 24-7 at 702-DEFENSE and tell us your story. We'll see what we can do to get the charges reduced or dismissed. A lot of people mistakenly believe that prostitution is legal throughout the state of Nevada. And that's true, except in the two counties where most people go. Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is located, and Washoe County, which is where Reno is located. NRS section 201.300 outlaws pandering, commonly known as pimping, in the state of Nevada. And what pandering is, is encouraging or forcing someone to engage in the exchange of sex for something of value. It's important to note that to convict someone of pandering, the state doesn't have to prove that sex actually occurred or that money was exchanged. Merely facilitating a situation where someone is arranging to exchange money in exchange for sex 
would be sufficient to constitute the commission of pandering if proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Appeals aren't the only way to contest guilty verdicts after a Nevada criminal trial. Under NRS 176.515, defendants can request an entirely new trial. Here are five things to know. One, a motion for new trial is when a defendant who is found guilty at trial asks the judge to hold a do-over. If the judge grants the motion, it will be as if the first trial never happened. Two, new trials are held in the same court that heard the original trial. Three, defendants granted new trials may introduce new evidence that was not included in the original trial. Four, it is rare for judges to grant motions for new trial, but it can happen. Typical grounds for a new trial include prosecutorial misconduct, newly discovered evidence, or the unlawful admission of evidence in the first trial. And five, in general, defendants have only seven days after their guilty verdict to bring a motion for a new trial. But if there is newly discovered evidence, the time limit for asking for a new trial is two years after the guilty verdict. And in some cases involving new DNA evidence, there is no time limit at all. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. The attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. In terms of the severity of penalty, Possession would be the least serious narcotic offense. Then would come possession for sales of narcotics would be more serious. Then actual sales of narcotics. And finally, trafficking of narcotics. And in essence, the penalties go up like steps uh, with each level of narcotics possession. Nevada narcotics laws are actually the harshest in the country. And even sale of a small quantity of narcotics can subject an individual to substantial periods of incarceration. As a matter of fact, under the Nevada trafficking law, sale of more than 28 grams of a controlled narcotic can subject an individual to life in prison upon conviction. Uh, although the, the statutes are broken up into uh, possession, uh, possession for sale, sale of narcotics, and trafficking laws, uh, because uh, the amounts in, uh, to be considered trafficking in Nevada are so low, as a matter of fact, four grams or higher can, can constitute trafficking in Nevada. Um, if you're charged for trafficking, you know, you really need to obtain counsel because the penalties are very harsh here. The good news with regard to narcotics laws in the state of Nevada is, although the laws themselves are very harsh, typically prosecuting 
agencies are fairly reasonable about negotiating resolutions in these cases. For example, um, one case that got a substantial amount of media attention was when Paris Hilton was arrested for possessing cocaine. And um, it was originally a felony charge. There was a lot of immediate media attention. Other celebrities and, and certainly a lot of people that aren't famous, you know, going to Nevada, specifically Las Vegas, to, to have a good time, to party, uh, and choose to engage in narcotic activity. Um, most often, although the penalties uh, are severe, um, for a simple possession of narcotics, it's very common to be able to negotiate a resolution that involves a plea to a misdemeanor offense so that uh, a fun time in Las Vegas on the weekend doesn't necessarily turn into a lifetime of uh, difficulty uh, and a, a felony record. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you in your future.